Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashkiss and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IB Green Minds podcast. My name is Guy Wilkinson and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Asad Razouk, CEO of Syndicatum Renewable Energy. Asad started his career at PwC before moving into the banking world at Nomura. He's also a trustee for Client Earth and has his own podcast, The Angry Clean Energy Guy, which I would thoroughly recommend. Asad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Guy. It's good to be here. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. Asad, I wanted to start off by delving back to the beginning of your career. Your podcast and your current activities obviously show a deep passion for sustainability, climate change, renewable energy. Was this always the case? And if not, what made you go into finance initially? It it certainly wasn't always the case. If you flash back through my life, you'll see that I was born and bred in Lebanon where I grew up accompanied for nine years by a civil war, where concerns on things like whether you have power or clean water and security and bombings and the like really trump everything else. Then I had to go to the United States to continue my university studies which were started at the American University of Beirut, but interrupted because of that civil war. And subsequently, after finishing a BA and then an MBA, I took a job, partly because that's what was available at the time for someone without a work permit in the US that needs an employer to hire him. And it was a great job where I uh, learned a lot, but it was more about survival than saving the world again. Um, Eventually, I moved to London and slightly changed industries to go into corporate finance, where effectively a lot of my job was either advising companies and governments or taking companies public and raising other types of finance for them. And I did that for issuers from Estonia all the way to South Africa, then eventually had a exposure to Asian markets. And during that whole time, I was just completely blind to sustainability. It just did not feature really anywhere. But at one point, I decided to, together with some partners start my own thing. And we did that from a timing perspective in 2002 and 2003, which happened to be about two two years, about two years before the Kyoto Protocol was ratified. Now, at that time, the Kyoto Protocol was a big deal, a very big deal a global deal. And it was a big deal because it was really the first time that the international community provided the private sector with a mechanism to save the world and make money at the same time, if I can put it that way. And so so we took a look at the Kyoto Protocol and designed effectively a business that would participate 
in the activities around it. And it's that business that then started to open my eyes to the suffering from climate change and therefore sustainability, because that business took me to the front lines of where climate pain is being felt firsthand. Was it's that, very hard to keep was, your eyes closed. Was that business syndicating? Yes. Taking a, a step back, was there a reason why you went down the clean energy route specifically? Was there something that happened before you set up syndication that made you think, okay, this is a serious problem that we need to resolve here because it seems a sort of a funny way around to start a company and then realize the damage that climate change was doing? No, it was purely profit motive with a mission, mm. right? It was profit motive first, mission second. It's only when you then roll up your sleeves that just how daunting the challenge is becomes something you know more and more real. And at, as it becomes more and more real and you become more and more aware of it and aware of the complexities of what we have to do to defeat climate change, you then in part get angry, you know, at everything that we should be doing, but we're not doing, and in part have a stronger mission together with a profit motive, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It's just very interesting, actually, that you say, because I think most people who own or start any any renewable energy company or any company focused on addressing the problems relating to climate change now, I think if they'd set it up in the last 10 years, they would have said mission first, profit later. And it's just really interesting to hear your honesty about how it was purely profit to begin with and then a realization of, of actually what it's all about. Um, so thank you for your honesty on that. That's uh, really interesting to hear. Would you mind telling the audience a little bit about syndicating energy and, and what it does? On, on the previous point, Guy, the, the one thing I would say is if you flash back to 2002, 3, 4, I don't think there were many programs, master's degrees, for example, at universities in sustainability or climate change. You know, maybe there was none, actually. Um, and that was just part of the environment at the time. You know, that was the, just a context issue. Um, Syndicatum today is a developer of renewable energy projects in Asia, mostly solar and wind in this part of the world where I am at the moment. So that's what we do. And it's really about mobilizing capital and then bringing that capital down to help accelerate the buildup of renewable energy across a continent where in many ways, what happens matters probably most greatly to climate change over the next decade. And in, in terms of the, the Asian energy market itself, um, we've been doing quite a lot of research projects recently, focusing on companies in who operate in Asia who are committing to net zero. But one of the biggest difficulties they have is that 
90% of the energy that their factories use or that their supply chain use are powered by fossil fuels. So even if they wanted to go to net zero, they can't. There's literally nothing that they can do um, because the power is, is all fossil fuels. Um, so I was wondering if you could comment on the state of the Asian renewable energy markets, why they're particularly behind uh, perhaps some European nations where actually they do have the opportunity to leapfrog uh, European nations somewhat and skip financing expensive, dirty fossil fuel projects and instead choose cheaper renewable energy? First of all, if I can just say, I'm developing an allergy to the word net zero, which means nothing, to be honest. And I would advise anyone who hears any corporate announcement about net zero to take a very close look to establish whether anything at all is going on. Because most of the time, it's just guff. And in any case, what's that thing about net zero? I mean, it should be plain zero, right? Can't disagree. <laughs> so that's my, my first point. The second point is, I hear what you say, but I can't really agree with you. And I'll tell you why. Asia includes China and India. There is no one building renewable energy at the speed or scale of these two countries by far. And if the Europeans or the North Americans were running at that speed, we would be further along in terms of addressing climate change as an existential threat. Now, when you look at Asia, it's probably useful to divide it into three pots. So you've got the Indian subcontinent, that's one pot. You've got the Southeast Asia, that's another pot. And then you have North Asia, which is generally wealthier and includes Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and China. Now, the difference between these three pots in terms of their challenges and what they're doing about it is quite stark. So I'm trying to generalize, but without overgeneralizing, right? But if you look at it in the way that I suggested, first, the subcontinent, renewables are developing as fast as certainly India can move. It's a huge challenge because the country needs to develop at the same time. And if you think about lifestyles in India, pretty much you know, you're trying to change everything. But I think that independent surveys give the Indian government the highest or the second highest score in terms of the effectiveness of what they're, what they're doing. Because the build out of the renewable energy that they are seeking to achieve by 2030, which is almost just eight years from now now, is huge by any scale. Uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka are smaller and certainly can do better, but they also have their own development challenges. 
And what's notable there is that both Bangladesh and Pakistan, which had large coal fleets that were being built, look like they've stopped that. And that in and of itself is quite meaningful. If you look at North Asia, as I said, China, you, you know, they're really doing everything that they can and running at, at full speed. Uh, together with Japan and South Korea, all three made net zero declarations. I'll, I'll use the word even though I don't like it, but I think, you know, it was at least, you know, when a government makes that pronouncement, I think it's got more substance than a corporation. Taiwan is maybe lagging behind, but it will get there. Um, then you have the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, so Southeast Asia. There you have uneven performances, but when they start getting things done, they initially move very slowly. But one of the characteristics of renewable energy is that when it happens, when people move, it can happen very fast. And Vietnam is a perfect case study of a country which went from no renewable energy to almost France in two years. I mean, again, the scale of the accomplishment in that country is amazing. Now, all of them obviously still have multiple climate challenges, but all of them also are on the front line of the suffering from climate change. So these countries routinely rank as the overwhelming majority of the top 10 most vulnerable countries from climate change. And what that means is that the citizen in that country is far more aware. And if the top down moves, the support from the citizens is there. It's kind of, in some ways, while very challenging, it's slightly easier than the choices that you want a European or a North American consumer to stop making. You know, gas guzzling SUVs in London or New York City, for example, right? In some ways, that's, that's like, it's more difficult to convince that citizen to drop his gas guzzling SUV than it is to convince a Filipino or an Indonesian that the activity that the country is undertaking is critical for his own livelihood. Yeah, understood. What are the main challenges in getting a project off the ground for, in the countries that you operate, for example? Well, the, the challenges really vary quite tremendously. If you're trying to develop renewable energy projects, you know, challenge number one is you need capital. So that capital appears now to be more available for that region than it historically was. Because effectively that capital, which is, doesn't like risk, is the global capital, is or likes to rank risks, was initially more comfortable in Western Europe and in North America. And now we can see really just in the last, I would say two years, that the risk appetite has migrated in some ways 
to Asia as a whole, with obviously distinctions between the countries. So challenge one is you need capital. Challenge two is you need land. Land issues are very varied in these countries. There are countries where land is very difficult to find, South Korea and Japan, for example, or Singapore. Others where it's easier. Then it's about the permitting, the environmental impact of your project, the social impact, and then it's procurement with all its attendant um, complications and risks, depending on the countries. I mean, we had, for example, during this pandemic, we had solar panels being shipped from China to the Philippines. They had to stay in the port in Manila to be scanned for COVID. That was not an experience that we were familiar with in pre-COVID, for example. So look, the challenges are varied. However, by and large, the renewable energy development in these markets is catching up to that in Europe and the United States with one main difference, which is that generally Europe and the US have deregulated markets that are liquid in terms of power. Asia, by and large, tends not to. And so how you sell electricity, for example, is different. How you price electricity is different. But all this should be converging, I would expect, as we advance in this decade. Just digging into that a little bit more, because we, we've been talking a lot of recently about the change needed in business models in the UK energy market to accommodate renewable power. How does, for example, the UK energy market differ in terms of structure compared to that of uh, Southeast Asian countries? Well, one of the key differences is that in many East Southeast Asian countries, you have only one monopoly supplier of electricity or one monopoly grid or both. That's a huge difference. So you know, right there, the dynamic is completely different with respect to how you develop a project in the UK and what your risks are and how you do that in Indonesia or Vietnam or Cambodia, for example. Um, but all the markets are different, right, in Asia, obviously. So, and these are not necessarily negatives. They can be positives, as I illustrated with my Vietnam example. So having a monopoly electricity buyer or grid can be a positive if you have political will, or it can be a huge obstacle to change if you don't. And so it's all interlinked in some ways, but the structure doesn't take away from the fundamentals. Solar and wind are far cheaper than anything else. And by now, all these countries and all these markets, they know it. I want to move on now to talk about a blockchain project which you're involved in called Rename. Um, we no- haven't had anybody speak on the podcast before about blockchain and its use in renewable energy. So I was wondering if you could, in layman's terms, explain what it is that Rename does and how it helps 
the renewable energy market. How it's hoping to help. <laughs> How it's hoping to help. <laughs> Does that mean it's not going very well? <laughs> well, it's in its infancy, but basically, yeah. look, the concept is pretty simple. You may have read that companies, multinationals, have announced objectives to be 100% powered by renewable energy. At the same time, you know that the Apple store on Fifth Avenue is not powered by renewable energy directly because it's powered via a grid, which has a mix of fossils and renewables in it. So most companies making these announcements are either trying to procure renewable energy directly to effectively offset electrons between the renewable energy that they're buying directly and the other energy that they're using, or they're funding um, on-site projects, you know, think rooftop solar on top of a battery manufacturing facility. But there will always be a residual amount of power that neither solution is enough yet, emphasis on yet, because things will change as renewable energy takes over around the world, for which they will need offsets, renewable energy credits. In other words, a certificate that on a megawatt hour by megawatt hour basis shows that this electricity, clean electricity, has been uh, generated um, elsewhere. So Renewum, which is a not-for-profit, is simply a blockchain-based process and mechanism to provide tokens, each one of which represent a megawatt hour of solar or wind generated in markets where there is no double counting in effect. And it's then the choice of companies or, or for that matter, private citizens who use power, whether they want to offset some of that using a renewal or an equivalent mechanism. And if they do, what will happen is that money will flow back to the renewable energy developers therefore giving them another source of revenue so that they can invest faster themselves. So what we did, all I did is we kind of designed it and we put it out there. And at the moment, we are going to socialize it uh, more, but ultimately it's a token representing a megawatt hour of energy. And if you buy it and then burn it, then you've made a contribution to a renewable energy project somewhere in the world, because that is the certificate that it generated that megawatt hour from clean sources that are verified and monitored. Fantastic. That was a remarkably uh, clear and simple explanation. I haven't heard anybody explain blockchain so, so uh, concisely. So thank you very much for that. I wanted to get on to some of the more difficult questions, and I know you have a lot to say about this. Um, the renewable energy industry receives a lot of criticism about the amount of damage it may or may not be doing to the environment in terms of extraction for rare earth minerals uh, and rare earth metals and things like that. 
We know there was an article in The Economist uh, about a month ago talking about deforestation that was happening specifically due to the demand for wind turbines. There's a massive demand for balsa wood, which is a big component in wind turbines. And we also know that the, the deep ocean ecosystem, for which we have little understanding in terms of its importance scientifically, um, is being destroyed on an industrial scale to find nodules of, of valuable minerals from undersea vents. So I was just wondering if you could comment on what considerations are needed regarding the environment and extracting these rare earth minerals and if there's anything that either finance companies or renewable energy companies themselves can do to help make this as least damaging as possible to the environment as we go through the green transition that's a very interesting question and it's a particular area of interest for me actually have you noticed guy that environmental, social, and governance standards, or ESG, have actually become a thing with the rise of renewable energy and electrification. And the reason I say that is because we have plundered the planet for 200 years, digging deep holes to extract coal right? Building huge pipelines to ship gas, exploring for oil in the most pristine places on earth, generating an amazingly large quantity of plastic, and then throwing some 10% of that plastic literally into the sea to the extent that we've poisoned fish and water and air, right? Plastic is 99% oil, as you know, and each individual on the planet has increased their consumption of plastic 23 times since 1973. That is all unnecessary plastic. However, to my point, we did all that hardly with apparently any enforcement of environmental, social, or governance regulations, because if we had, we would probably have done all of that far, far better. And that is the kind of most fundamental point I want to make. It is no coincidence that the rise of ESG discipline, which is now a thing, is parallel to the rise of renewable energy and green and electrification. That's because our industry's DNA is about paying attention to environmental, social and governance issues. Whereas what we're replacing was not. So the, 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 the issue is clear. The measures are being taken. And the more we tighten environmental, social, and governance standards, the better we're going to do. However, the faster we do our thing, the more or the quicker you're going to get rid of all the bad stuff we've been doing for 150, 200 years, and which is continuing still all around you. We are still digging holes to produce coal, 
we are still exploring for oil and gas in pristine areas like the Arctic. We are still building gas pipelines and we're still leaving them behind, by the way, when we're done with them, so that they leak methane and pollutants and contaminants into the soil forever, in effect. So while your question is great, it's kind of great for, it's, it's even better to, you know, I like to put it in context because I think that context is very important. So bottom line, we can recycle pretty much 100% of solar panels right, right now. We can recycle almost 100% of batteries. We can recycle almost 100% of wind turbines. There are laws coming around the world of which some are already existing, for example, in the European Union to force you to recycle. On mining, certainly our industry is pushing as much as it can for sustainable mining in the context though that I described. Because around the stuff that you're doing, there's all these other mines that are breaking and have been breaking ESG standards for 150 years. Is there a danger, say, for example, we as a, as a, as a civilization do want to get to net zero by 2050? Um, and obviously, I think we're both agreed on that, but not everybody around the world is. Is there a danger that implementing ESG measures too strictly and implementing regulations too strictly could slow the green transition and prevent our ability to get to net zero? Sorry to use that phrase again, that I know you hate so much, um, to get to net zero by, by 2050 in line with the Paris Agreement. The short answer is absolutely not. And the reason for that is that zero, forget not zero, is cheaper, cleaner, healthier, and sustainable. That's the reason. Meaning you cannot... Um, forget, T take batteries and recycling, okay? I'd like to see laws in all the major manufacturing countries for batteries that force, by law, manufacturers to track their products, collect it, and reuse it. This is coming, as I said, and there's private sector companies that are being built out quickly to address this issue. But that's exactly what we did not do with plastic. We let the manufacturers of plastic effectively produce it and dump it on us without any thought to what's going to happen to it once it was out of their factory. And so the price of the environmental destruction of that plastic is not priced in. This, therefore, the plastic is super cheap compared to what it should be. Because if it was priced in, we would be using 90% less plastic. Similarly, on our side, so, you know, solar panels, batteries, uh, wind turbines, electric cars, electric scooters, electric bicycles, right? All of these are actually already recyclable. We just have to make sure from a policy perspective that the ecosystem is there to recycle them and the profit motive is there to recycle them. And then effectively you'll take care of the problem. Most of the world's solar panels in 2030, 2035 and 2040 
can probably be old solar panels that are being reused. You know, that's huge. That's amazing. And with the amount of batteries that we're producing today, I should say all of which have a very long useful life. You know, it's not a plastic bag. The, 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 the challenge is eminently doable. So zero, as in net zero, but really it should be zero, is actually cheaper, cleaner, healthier. And health, by the way, is super important. Imagine the contingent liability sitting on our health systems from all this pollution, which kills 10 million people a year, of which 7 million from fossil fuels and 3 million from their derivatives. Imagine the cost on the health system, because that's just the people who die. That's not everybody else that's affected. Getting rid of these types of contingent liabilities sitting on our health systems is a huge liberation of resources, in effect, for economies and countries. That's a very good point. Um, we've actually got a guest question from Ollie, who asks, how do we tackle the perception of people who always highlight the small bad bits within inherently good industries like renewable energy? Follow the money. I'm sure that's certainly what a lot of our cohort will be doing after after this master's, hopefully. I wanted to, to go to, to a couple of wrap-up questions in that regard. I wanted to see what advice you had for our listeners in terms of uh, career path and in terms of personal values going forward as they start out their, their career. Well, I do think that mission should be combined with profit motives because that's the system that we've built, right? But a caring green capitalism is not exactly what we have at the moment. And so the more graduates are aware and the more Millennials, and then those behind them, are aware of the fact that these are holistics, holistic concepts. The better society is. And I'm going to give you a simple example, which maybe doesn't exactly illustrate the point, but should tell you what I mean. Assume you're going to work for a law firm. Law firms are almost never criticized on climate grounds. We've kind of missed them. I think you have Yet a very good episode on your podcast of this, actually. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But the, the, point of the, the, the point is that I can be 22, 23. I have a great master's degree in law. I go work for a law firm and I want to do good while getting paid, you know, fair wages. Um, because law firms are one industry that, uh, where, where you can potentially get very well paid. And so they attract a lot of talent. What that talent isn't doing is questioning them on how they take business, what kind of business they take, and the consequences of their legal advice. And so if you graduate and, and you kind of pay a 360, 360 view on what you're doing, 
I think we can speed up that zero by 2050 quite significantly because people actually care and they are trying to do the right thing. But the system sometimes blinds them or sidetracks them. Actual mm. advice guy, but that's... And lastly, to, to wrap up the, the, the podcast today, if you wanted listeners to take one piece of advice or one particular point away from from the podcast episode today what what would you want it to be we are seriously running out of time in terms of effecting lasting change that would protect human population on a multi-decadal view and every contribution no matter how small it is matters so you asked for one piece of advice i think that would be vote if you are given the opportunity to vote in an election absolutely vote the climate agenda because we don't have time and if you live in a country where you don't have the privilege of being able to vote, then vote with your wallet or with your feet, for example. There are many ways to vote and the contribution of every citizen matters. That's a very good, good lasting piece of advice. Asad, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, for those who don't know Asad's podcast, The Angry Clean Energy Guy, please do go check it out on Spotify and Apple. Uh, it's thoroughly enjoyable and I am a frequent listener. Um, Asad, thanks for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure, Guy. Thank you. This was fun.